This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. This episode features discussion of drug abuse, domestic abuse, suicide, and murder that may be offensive to some listeners. Discretion is advised, especially for listeners under 13. On January 25th, 2004, 36-year-old Chris Benoit made his way to the ring as the first entrant to the 17th annual Royal Rumble. The last man standing in the 30-person match was awarded a guaranteed title shot at the biggest pay-per-view of the year, WrestleMania. After 57 minutes, only two of the 30 wrestlers remained, Chris Benoit and The Big Show. At 5'11 and 7 feet, respectively, they were two wrestlers on distinctly opposite sides of the spectrum. How in the world was Benoit going to manage to force this monster over the top rope? As if to answer that very question, Big Show easily plucked Benoit off his feet and hoisted him into the air, ready to launch him like a lawn dart. But before he could throw him, Benoit wrapped his arms and legs around the Big Show's head and shoulders, hanging on for dear life. The giant set him down on the other side of the ring, punching his chest, trying to force him to let go. But Benoit just squeezed tighter, cutting off the Big Show's air. Eventually, he leveraged the giant's own weight to pull him over the top rope. He flipped onto the apron and tumbled down to the ground, eliminated. He'd done it. He'd beaten the odds and slain Goliath. Now, Chris Benoit was going to WrestleMania to fight for the title. He didn't realize it at the time, but this would be his last singles heavyweight championship run with the WWE. He'd be dead before his next title shot. Welcome to Sports Criminals, a ParCast original. Every week, we dive into the dark side of sports history and look at athletes who not only broke the law, but broke the rules and covenants of their sport. We'll also uncover how their actions impacted the history of the sport they played. I'm Tim Johnson. And I'm Carter Roy. You can find episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Sports Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our conclusion episode on professional wrestler Chris Benoit. 
Last week, we followed his rise in the world of wrestling, from Stu Hart's Dungeon to Ted Turner's WCW, and finally, Vince McMahon's WWE. Today, we'll cover Benoit's return to the ring and his final years with the WWE. We'll look at the events that led up to the Benoit family tragedy in June of 2007 and how it impacted the world of professional wrestling as a whole. Chris Benoit's year away from wrestling in 2001 and 2002 was one of the darkest times of his life. And it had very little to do with the injury itself or the pain from his spine surgery. It was the torment of knowing that the business was carrying on without him. As we covered last week, the guy couldn't even stand to take a two-week vacation when he worked for New Japan. Now he'd been forced to the sidelines for 12 months. During his rehab, he sank into a deep depression. Benoit turned to heavy pain medication use for the first time in his career, pushing his body to recover as quickly as possible. He was irritable with his family, lashing out at them. It all put a huge amount of strain on Benoit's marriage. Normally, Nancy Benoit was the perfect counterpart to her husband's wrestling obsession. She'd worked in the business herself as a ring valet, working under the ring name Woman. Not only did she understand the realities of life on the road, she understood the business itself better than most wrestlers' wives. In fact, their entire relationship was born out of a wrestling storyline. In 1996, Nancy was married to wrestler Kevin Sullivan, who was also the WCW booker. In an attempt to generate some heat, he instructed Nancy to start spending more time with Chris Benoit in real life. He hoped that gossip about their relationship would reach the wrestling rags, and this quote-unquote real-life affair could spark an epic in-ring feud. Well, the only problem was no one really noticed or cared. The smart marks who actually were paying attention saw Nancy and Benoit's fake affair as an obvious ploy and refused to play into Sullivan's game. Now, for one thing, Benoit was a pretty boring guy outside of the ring. He just wasn't the type to suddenly strike up an affair with someone like Nancy unless someone told him he had to. Second, it's not like Nancy and Kevin Sullivan were a storybook couple. Allegedly, Sullivan was notoriously abusive towards Nancy and had engaged in plenty of affairs himself. At the time this was all happening, he was rumored to be sleeping with his own valet, Jacqueline. So if Nancy really was cheating with Benoit, good for her. But like so many things in Chris Benoit's life, the line between what was real and what was kayfabe eventually blurred. After several months of Sullivan pushing them together, the pair really did fall for each other. In 1997, Nancy ended her marriage with Sullivan and got engaged to Benoit. The guys in the locker room joked that in his search for a new angle, Kevin Sullivan had essentially booked his own divorce. Around this same time, Nancy retired from wrestling. In February of 2000, she gave birth to Benoit's son, Daniel. And from that point, they basically had a long-distance marriage. Nancy stayed home with the baby while Benoit was on the road. That is, until the summer of 2001, when he ruptured a cervical vertebra and had to take time off. Now, not only was he home all the time, he was depressed and sullen. They fought constantly, with their 18-month-old son watching from the sidelines. Eventually, Nancy filed for divorce on the grounds of cruel treatment. She also filed a restraining order against him. 
She didn't accuse him of physical violence, but alleged that he destroyed furniture and other inanimate objects during their arguments. She said he would fly into rages, seemingly unprovoked. However, Nancy later dropped the divorce paperwork and withdrew the restraining order. They got back together. She must have seen a change in her husband, and it was probably related to his WWE comeback, because Chris Benoit was finally getting his title shot. Benoit was an undeniably talented wrestler. WWE superstar Chris Jericho said, Benoit was the Michael Jordan or Wayne Gretzky of his profession. He was that good. He influenced many, many wrestlers all around the world and changed the style of pro wrestling in this country. He was a fan favorite, always making the top 10 matches of the year list. He was a hard worker in the ring, always making his opponents look good. And he was a consummate professional, never missing a match or showing up unable to work. And yet, he'd toiled away in the mid-card for two decades. He was just seen as too small to be a champ. The only time he'd been given a heavyweight title shot was as a last-ditch effort from WCW to keep him from walking out the door. And he'd turned it down, fed up with a lot of them. He'd hoped that he would be given a fair shake in WWE, but Vince McMahon was just as size-conscious. In the late 80s, McMahon had refused to hire anyone who was shorter than he was, 6'1", but was eventually forced to retract that stipulation to widen his talent pool. Still, he held cruiserweights in much lower esteem, treating them as B-level guys. Ratings were down, especially among diehard fans, and management knew that Benoit was a smart mark darling. So at the end of 2003, they made the call. Benoit was finally getting a push to the top of the card. Author Matthew Randazzo described the decision in his book, Ring of Hell, saying, It would be Benoit's medal for long service, for working injured countless times, for always being a loyal, hardworking, and obedient employee. Benoit's kayfabe-fueled prophecy had finally come true. His road to WrestleMania started in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania at the 2004 Royal Rumble pay-per-view. This is always one of the more anticipated and auspicious events of the year, a 30-person match with a unique elimination stipulation. There are no pinfalls or submissions. Everyone has to be tossed over the top rope. Well, this gives big guys a huge advantage and makes smaller wrestlers like Benoit easy targets. And they don't all start in the ring at once. Every 90 seconds, a new wrestler joins the fray. Well, this means that the higher your entry number, the less time you have to spend fighting. And the last man standing, the one who can outlast his 29 fellow competitors, is awarded a guaranteed shot at the World Heavyweight Championship at WrestleMania. But Vince McMahon wasn't ready to just hand Benoit his title shot. He was still going to make him work for it. He named Benoit as entrant number one. Benoit was going to have to beat every other man in that ring to prove himself to the fans. The Royal Rumble match was the night's main event. When the Canadian crippler Chris Benoit stalked down to the ring, the crowd was primed and rowdy, probably a little drunk. They had no idea they were about to watch history be made. Man after man charged down the ramp and into the match. One by one, they all went over the top rope. After almost an hour, Benoit was one of two men left standing in the ring, Benoit and The Big Show. 
David and Goliath. When the seven-foot-tall Big Show easily scooped Benoit into the air, the crippler wrapped his arms and legs around the giant's neck. He squeezed and squeezed, eventually forcing his giant opponent over the top rope with a guillotine chokehold. The Big Show tumbled out of the ring. Benoit was the last man standing. The referee raised his right arm in victory. Not only did Benoit win, but he'd broken the record for the longest amount of time spent in the Royal Rumble match, lasting one hour, one minute, 35 seconds. One of the commentators declared, Chris Benoit has worked his ass off for 19 years and the day has come. He earned it. You gotta give the man credit. You gotta respect what he did. Unfortunately for Benoit, his title reign would culminate in another slap in the face from WWE management, and it would set him on a path toward ruin. Coming up, Benoit's short-lived championship run and the beginning of his downward spiral. Now, back to the story. The spring of 2004 was arguably a career high for 36-year-old Chris Benoit. After winning the Royal Rumble in January, he was on the road to WrestleMania. Throughout February and March, Benoit was given weekly primetime promos, stoking the fires of his upcoming title match with the current heavyweight champion, Triple H. But there was some dispute backstage about whether or not Chris Benoit really had what it took to be a main event draw. Sure, he had the loyalty of die-hard wrestling fans, but what about the general public? Did they even know who the Crippler was? So, in the weeks leading up to WrestleMania, Vince McMahon decided to change the direction of the storyline. Instead of just fighting Triple H, Benoit would also face the heartbreak kid, Shawn Michaels, in a triple threat match. Now, there were a few issues with this changeup. First of all, Shawn Michaels and Triple H had just fought for the heavyweight title in January. At the same pay-per-view, Benoit won his own title shot. So to the fans, it felt like a match they'd already seen. But more importantly, it made zero sense to the storyline. Shawn Michaels and Triple H had over a decade of storyline by that point. They'd teamed together, then turned on each other, then re-teamed, and turned on each other again. They were like the wrestling equivalent of a soap opera's Will They, Won't They. Their long storied history with each other suddenly became the focus of the promos. Benoit became the third wheel in his own championship match. So going into WrestleMania 20 on March 14, 2004, the fans weren't sure what to expect. They knew they wanted Triple H to lose, but there was division in the audience over who they wanted to win. Pretty Boy veteran Shawn Michaels or the grizzled worker Chris Benoit. In line with the promos, Triple H and Shawn Michaels went after each other when the match started, ignoring Benoit and literally pushing him away from their scrum. But Benoit refused to be ignored. When Shawn Michaels fell in the center of the ring, Benoit pounced, locking in his signature Crippler crossface submission hold. But before he could make Michaels tap, Triple H broke the two men apart. For 23 minutes, the men scrapped and worked. Halfway through the battle, Benoit sent Shawn Michaels face first into the top turnbuckle, and he smacked his forehead on the ring post. It split open the skin above his left eye, and he started to bleed profusely. Soon, all three men were streaked with red. 
Then, Shawn Michaels and Triple H momentarily rekindled their partnership. They double-teamed Benoit, working together to body-slam him into one of the announcer's tables. They left Benoit in a broken heap on top of the destroyed table, then returned to the ring, just the two of them, exactly how they wanted. But Benoit wasn't done yet. When Triple H finally pinned Shawn Michaels, both of them bloody and exhausted, Benoit leapt back into the ring and broke up the pinfall. The crowd exploded in cheers, chanting his name. The commentator expressed his disbelief. Did the EMTs throw him in the ring? How did he get up? While Michaels lay incapacitated on the mat, Benoit twisted Triple H into a sharpshooter, the first submission hold he learned in Stu Hart's dungeon 15 years before. Then he held on for dear life as Triple H flopped like a marlin, writhing in agony. The crowd started to chant, tap, tap, tap. Shawn Michaels suddenly came back to life, kicking Benoit square in the face, breaking the submission hold. He tried to pin the flattened Benoit, but the crippler mustered the last bit of his strength and kicked out. 17,000 fans in Madison Square Garden erupted in praise. They urged him on, shouting, Benoit, Benoit. When Michaels charged at him, Benoit flipped the bloodied veteran out of the ring entirely. Then he set his sights on Triple H. He locked in another submission hold, the crippler crossface, Benoit's signature move. He viciously twisted Triple H's arm, refusing to let go. Then, finally, Triple H tapped out. Benoit was the new heavyweight champion. Confetti rained from the sky as Benoit held the title in his blood-smeared hands. Every fan in Madison Square Garden was on their feet, celebrating along with him. His best friend and fellow wrestler, Eddie Guerrero, joined him in the ring. Guerrero was carrying his own belt that night. The two men had proven to the world together that cruiserweights could hold their own at the top of the card. But it was all over just as soon as it started. According to Matthew Randazzo, head of creative Stephanie McMahon said of his championship, this isn't going to last. He isn't like Sean. The guys don't want to be him and the girls don't want to sleep with him. After only five months, Benoit was forced to surrender the title at SummerSlam 2004. He lost to a young hotshot wrestler, 24-year-old Randy Orton. Even worse, the match was in Toronto. Benoit lost his first major title in front of a hometown crowd that all wanted him to win. It only added insult to injury. And he never got another run at the heavyweight championship again. The next few years brought more disaster for Benoit. On November 13, 2005, Benoit's best friend, Eddie Guerrero, was out on the road in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He'd scheduled a wake-up call for 7 a.m., but he didn't respond. Hotel security knocked on the door. No answer. His nephew and fellow wrestler, Chavo Guerrero, eventually convinced security to open the door. They discovered Eddie on the bathroom floor. He was holding his toothbrush, still with toothpaste on it. He died of a heart attack allegedly caused by years of prolonged steroid use. Like Benoit, Eddie felt pressured because of his smaller stature. Only five foot eight, he juiced up to bulk his muscle mass, and eventually his heart couldn't take anymore. Two days after his death, on November 15th, 
The WWE held a tribute show for Eddie Guerrero on Monday Night Raw. Several wrestlers spoke about Eddie as a man and as a wrestler, including Chris Benoit. Benoit was usually so stoic, so introverted, his friends called him Houdini for his ability to disappear in front of them. But that night, in front of the camera, Benoit laid himself bare. He said, Eddie Guerrero is my best friend. He was such a beautiful person, such a kind-hearted person. We've been up and down every mountain, each and every highway. He was the one friend that I had that I could go to and pour my heart out to if I was going through something. He was the one guy that I could call and talk to and know that he'd understand and talk me out of it. We never left each other without telling each other that we loved each other, and I truly can say that I love Eddie Guerrero. I love you. And I miss you. Then Benoit broke down into tears. Real, heart-wrenching sobs that shook his whole body. He tried to keep speaking through his emotions, but each word became harder to say than the last. Eventually, it became too much, and Benoit literally walked off screen. On the next Friday night SmackDown, Benoit wrestled against his now-familiar foe, Triple H, in a tribute match for Eddie. It was an emotional win, one that ended with a long embrace between the two fighters. When they broke, Benoit led the crowd in chanting, Eddie, Eddie, Eddie. Everyone who knew Chris Benoit said he was never the same after Eddie's death, but it was only the first in a series of tragedies. On January 28, 2006, Benoit's friend and mentor in New Japan, a wrestler named Black Cat, also died of a heart attack. Black Cat was the New Japan booker when Benoit was first coming up in the dojo. Black Cat had booked Benoit's career-making matches against Jushin Thunder Liger. He was also the one who helped him break into the luchador scene in Mexico. Then, just a few weeks after that, another of Benoit's close friends died, wrestler Johnny Grunge. The pair both lived in Atlanta, Georgia. When they weren't on the road, they went on double dates with their wives. Johnny had two young kids, now fatherless, who were playmates of Benoit's son. Soon after, he mourned his former Stampede tag team partner Biff Wellington, as well as WCW wrestlers Sherry Martell, Mike Awesome, and Bam Bam Bigelow. The quick succession of tragedies left Benoit alone and rudderless in his grief. It was around this time that Benoit started to display anxiety and paranoia. He told his father that he believed he was being followed. He mapped out 30 distinct routes between his house and the gym he worked at so that he could take a different path each day and avoid detection. His sister-in-law said that Benoit didn't like to drive the same car every day because it made him too easy to follow. His father said in an interview, the chauffeur that used to drive him home from the airport at times said Chris would tell him, take a different route. I don't want anyone to follow me home. They had their son in a lockdown school so no one would kidnap him. They moved into this new house with large fencing all around and went out and got trained German shepherds to protect the house because people were after them. After Eddie Guerrero's death, Benoit started writing letters to him in heaven as a coping mechanism for his grief. In one, he described a dream he had about his parents being killed. He wrote, Nancy and I were trying to get to her parents in Daytona to save them because we felt that they were being taken next. 
and these people after them were very powerful, high-ranking people. When we got to Daytona, it was too late. Her parents were gone too, perished. There could have been a few different causes of Benoit's increased paranoia. As we said last week, he regularly used steroids from about age 15. The rush of testosterone from juicing can sometimes be intense. To take the edge off, many steroid users supplement with an anti-anxiety drug like Valium or Xanax. However, prolonged use of this medication can actually increase your overall anxiety in the long term. Patients can become dependent on the effects of anti-anxiety medication. When they stop taking it, they can feel hyper-anxious, even worse than before they started the prescription, because their brain has become dependent on the effect of the medication. In addition to intense paranoia, Benoit had become verbally and physically abusive towards his wife, Nancy. The final months of their relationship were that of a deteriorating marriage. Allegedly, Nancy had reached her limit with Benoit's steroid abuse. According to Matthew Randazzo, she repeatedly threw out his stash of steroids in the house while he was out on the road. When he came home each time to discover what she'd done, he became enraged. Six weeks before the murders, Nancy texted, I will not accept this steroid-induced roller coaster ride of emotional abuse. Are you trying to say this is how you grew up? Watching your dad call your mom names and making her cry? No. Then what gives you the right? She said in a later message, Ignoring the problem or running away isn't going to help you face it. You need professional help and only if you're fully honest about all of it. However, as much as Benoit was dealing with his steroid habit, Nancy was grappling with her own addictions. In addition to heavy drinking, Nancy was likely addicted to hydrocodone, also commonly known as Vicodin or Lorset. On May 30th, Nancy was prescribed 360 pills of Lorset by her family doctor, Phil Aston. By June 22nd, she'd consumed 278 of the 360 pills. That's roughly 12 pills per day, assuming that she was the only one taking them. And that's a likely assumption because Benoit had a Lorset prescription of his own. From June 8th to June 22nd, he went through a prescription of 120 pills, roughly eight per day. And it was in this haze during the summer of 2007 that their fights only escalated. Friends started to notice bruises on Nancy for the first time. She accused her husband of locking her up in their house. On June 21st, the day before her murder, Nancy called a friend in a panic. She warned, if anything happens to me, look at Chris. Coming up, Chris Benoit's troubles boil over. Now the conclusion of the story. By June of 2007, it seemed like all areas of 40-year-old Chris Benoit's life were coming to a head. His marriage was on the rocks. He and his wife Nancy constantly fought about his continued steroid use. His career was also hitting the skids. Vince McMahon had recently purchased another wrestling outfit, Extreme Championship Wrestling, or ECW. It was more of an independent league, not as mainstream, but it had a dedicated fan base, especially among diehard fans. 
By bringing it into the WWE fold, McMahon was going to use it as a farm team, basically. A place for young guys to cut their teeth and become better workers. But to bridge the gap between this new minor league outfit and the major leagues of WWE, McMahon decided that he needed to send some of his established talent over to the new show. He decided Chris Benoit, who had spent time in ECW at the very beginning of his career, was the perfect choice. At the next pay-per-view, titled Vengeance, Night of Champions, Benoit was scheduled to win the ECW heavyweight belt and be the inaugural champion. Now, in some regards, this could be seen as an honor. McMahon was entrusting Benoit to be a coach and mentor to the young bucks. He wanted every new guy who walked in the door to model themselves after Benoit, the consummate professional, the obedient worker. But on the other hand, this had to feel like a demotion in some part. This was the first shot at a heavyweight title Benoit had been given since his run in 2004, and it was for the minor leagues. It basically sealed the deal that he would never be offered another run at the top of the card ever again. Fellow wrestler Chris Jericho has denied that Benoit felt any kind of disappointment or sour grapes over his recruitment to ECW. He was happy to be given the role of mentor. But the timing of what followed brings his enthusiasm about the new position into question. Because on the night he was supposed to win the championship, he was in the middle of murdering his family. While the true cause of that tragic weekend will never be known and can never be explained, we do have a pretty good idea of the order of events. On the afternoon of June 22, 2007, Benoit visited Dr. Aston. He re-upped his lorset as well as his prescription for anabolic steroids. According to prescription records, Aston was prescribing him a 10-month supply every month. As author Matthew Randazzo wrote, the family physician was basically Benoit's drug dealer. Later, when he was home, a neighbor's pool cleaner saw Benoit barbecuing outside. His seven-year-old son, Daniel, was outside with him, playing in the yard. The scene was peaceful, idyllic there was no indication of the horrors to come. At 9.25 p.m., someone from the Benoit house called information and asked for the number for the police department. Authorities later assumed that it was Nancy who made the call, but it's unconfirmed. Seven minutes later, at 9.32, she called a neighbor and left a message on the answering machine. Yet her voice was calm, nothing appeared to be wrong. This might have been due to a potent combination of drugs and alcohol in her system. Toxicology showed that in addition to her normal lorsets, Nancy had taken both the anti-anxiety Xanax and the narcotic Dilaudid that night, which means that she may have been heavily sedated, though the medical examiner later stated Nancy's blood levels were normal for someone using these drugs therapeutically. Likely around 10 p.m. that night, Chris attacked Nancy. He brought her to an upstairs family room and bound her wrists and ankles with duct tape. Reports suggest that Benoit slammed her face into the floor when she tried to resist. Her autopsy determined that Benoit pinned Nancy to the floor face down, pressing his knee into her back. Then he wrapped a TV cable around her neck and strangled her. Benoit then covered her body with a towel, placed a Bible on the floor next to her, and left her there. All the while, Daniel was apparently asleep in his bedroom. At some point the next morning, Saturday, June 23rd, Benoit went into his son's room. 
he gave Daniel enough Xanax to render him unconscious. Then, once he'd fallen asleep, he smothered his seven-year-old boy in his own bed. Benoit tucked him back in, then placed another Bible by his side. Benoit was scheduled to wrestle at an event in Beaumont, Texas that night. He called fellow wrestler Chavo Guerrero and told him he was running late. He wouldn't be able to ride with him to the show as planned. Benoit claimed that he'd been forced to reschedule his flight because Nancy and Daniel were horribly sick with food poisoning. He'd had to take them to the hospital because Nancy was vomiting blood, but he promised he'd still make it to the show. Before he hung up, he stopped and pointedly said, Chavo, I love you. Chavo waited for him at the airport as long as he could, but Benoit didn't show. He called him a few more times, no answer. Chavo went to the event in Beaumont. Benoit never arrived. The next morning, Chavo woke up to a few text messages from Chris. He'd sent them in the middle of the night at 3.50 a.m. The first said, My physical address is 130 Green Meadow Lane, Fayetteville, Georgia, 30215. This immediately struck Chavo as odd. Not just the timestamp, but the message itself. He knew that Benoit was an incredibly private person and used a P.O. box for all his correspondence, never giving out his home address. So why was he sending it now? A second text message was even stranger. It read, The dogs are in the enclosed pool area. Garage side door is open. After he'd sent the messages, Benoit had gone downstairs to his home gym. He rigged up a pulley system using his weight machine and used it to break his own neck. When Chavo woke up and saw the messages, he immediately called Benoit, but there was no answer. That night, they were all supposed to wrestle in a pay-per-view match in Houston. Benoit was supposed to win the ECW Heavyweight Championship, and he was completely MIA. Chris Benoit, the consummate professional who worked through any injury and always showed up on time, had already missed one scheduled performance. But now two? Everyone knew that something was horribly wrong. The WWE management contacted the Fayetteville Police Department and asked them to go to Benoit's house for a welfare check. They found the dogs in the fenced-in yard by the pool, just like the message said. And they found the bodies of the Benoit family. The discovery shocked those who knew Benoit and those who were fans of Benoit. Even those who had never heard of Benoit until the murder-suicide was blasted across the nightly news were in complete disbelief. Everyone was left with the same question. Why? Talking heads immediately spewed out a few theories. Rumors spread from the locker room that Daniel Benoit had an intellectual disability called Fragile X Syndrome. It was speculated that caring for a special needs child put strain on the Benoit marriage and was too much for his father to bear. However, this was later disproved. There's no indication that Daniel had any kind of developmental issues. The most popular consensus that circled was that Benoit suffered from roid rage. Based on his physique, he was obviously juicing. Benoit must have snapped and gone berserk. But Dr. Julian Bales, who studied the Benoit case, disagreed with the assessment. He said, there's no consensus in the medical community that this issue of roid rage or uncontrolled violence precipitated by seemingly normal life stressors 
there's no consensus that that even exists. Instead, Dr. Bales believes that Chris Benoit suffered from chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE. According to the Concussion Legacy Foundation, CTE is a degenerative brain disease found in athletes, military veterans, and others with a history of repetitive brain trauma. In CTE, a protein called tau forms clumps that slowly spread throughout the brain, killing brain cells. Some common changes seen include impulse control problems, aggression, depression, and paranoia. Benoit's brain was examined after death, and doctors found extensive damage consistent with CTE. All four lobes of his brain were heavily scarred, and the damage was comparable to that of, quote, an 85-year-old Alzheimer's patient. Benoit's signature move, the one he performed over a thousand times in the course of his career, was the diving headbutt. Every time he slammed into the mat, even if he didn't directly hit his head, he still bounced his brain off the inside of his skull. EMT and sports writer Louis Babcock described the impact of the diving headbutt on Benoit's brain in an article for Bleacher Report. He estimated that every time he jumped from the top rope, Benoit fell to the ground at a speed of 9.8 meters per second. And even when his body stopped moving, his internal organs continued to move from inertia. Babcock explained, Chris's brain was a bouncy ball inside his skull for a split second every time he hit that move. Now think about the math for a minute. If Chris hits that move 10 times a week, that is one second. Now look at how long his career was. Let's say he wrestled 200 times a year for 11 years. Chris would have wrestled 2,200 matches. If he hits the diving headbutt in each match, going by our previous formula, Chris's brain is a bouncy ball for 220 seconds, which equates to three minutes and 40 seconds. Picture your brain bouncing from front to back of your skull at a speed of 9.8 meters per second for almost four minutes. The cumulative effect of this damage would be huge. As we mentioned earlier, Benoit was increasingly paranoid in the months leading up to the murders. He believed someone was following him, out to hurt him and his family. It's possible that he was eventually consumed by these delusions. Perhaps he became so convinced that his family was in danger, he felt that they would only be protected in death. Ultimately, we will never be able to understand what Benoit was thinking when he murdered his family. We'll never be able to rationalize or contextualize his actions. But that's kind of the point. Clearly for him to have done what he did, he was not thinking like a normal person. His mind was broken. His brain was damaged. Since the Benoit tragedy, the WWE has instituted a number of changes to try to prevent something like this from happening again. Their concussion policy has been updated. Any wrestler who shows any sign of brain injury is sidelined for recovery. A handful of career wrestlers like Daniel Bryan and Corey Graves were forced to retire over repeated concussions. In addition, the WWE has been more willing to acknowledge and address the rampant substance abuse in the locker room. They have offered help and rehab to any wrestler with a history of addiction, whether they're still actively on the roster or not. In the case of Chris Benoit, these are changes that would have been invaluable to his life and safety and that of his family. But perhaps these changes will save someone else's life in the future.
Thanks again for listening to Sports Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. In addition to the many sources we used, we found Matthew Randazzo's book, Ring of Hell, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite ParCast originals, like Sports Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Sports Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Sports Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It's executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Freddie Beckley, and Joel Stein. This episode of Sports Criminals was written by Abigail Cannon and stars Tim Johnson and Carter Roy. 